You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Impact of Influence, the Murdoch family murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. Matt Harris and Seton Tucker here, and we're always so grateful that you decided to spend some time with us. Lots of things to do and lots of things to listen to. Uh, We're so pleased, and we would love it if you would rate the episode, comment on it, especially if it's a good one, and share the episode, and so more and more people can hear what we're doing. We'd love it. Murdoch Podcast on Facebook, mattharrispodcast at gmail.com. And speaking of things to listen to, there is a new podcast coming out called The Presumption, which is going to be put on by Jim Griffin, the attorney for Alec Murdoch, and Sarah Azari. So this Murdoch case has sprung up a few with Eric Bland, who represented the Satterfields as a podcast, and now a member of the defense team for Alec Murdoch has a podcast. And all of those people we have had on our podcast. That's exactly true. Room for everyone. Yeah, we bring them all on. Bring them all on. Well, speaking of Eric Bland. There does not seem to be a lot of love lost between Eric Bland and Jim Griffin and Dick Harpootland. We talked about this motion that Jim Griffin and Dick Harpootland filed to vacate the confession of judgment to the Satterfield family. And now we have a response from Bland and Richter on behalf of the Satterfield family. And in the memorandum, it says, at its heart, the defendant's motion for relief from judgment pursuant to South Carolina Civil Procedure Rule 60B, the motion, asks one simple question. May I have a mulligan? More aptly described, though, their motion, Team Murdoch, which includes Murdoch and his counsel, have stumbled late on the judicial first tee with a small bucket of balls and with the parent attempt to fire shots until they finally hit the fairway. Obviously, Murdoch is not a golfer. Neither are his lawyers. There are no mulligans. Like a spoiled child, the motion is overindulged and undisciplined. Murdoch's argument seems to be, because I committed fraud on the court in the underlying case, I am entitled to be relieved of my confessed judgment now. And by the memorandum, the plaintiffs will expose the many whiffs Slices, tops, blocks, chunks, hooks, and duffs that have so needlessly wasted this court's time and have unnecessarily caused the further victimization of the Satterfield family, thus entitling the plaintiffs to sanction against both Murdoch and his legal counsel in order to punish their conduct and deter such similar abuses 
of the plaintiffs and the legal system going forward. So they're not meeting up at the golf course anytime soon. No, a lot of golf references in there. And there's many of them in the filing as well. It's one of the more entertaining legal documents I've read. We've read a lot of dry ones over the last few years of of following Murdoch and Beach Trial and all those. This definitely has some pizzazz. And I wonder who the judges is going to hear the case. Are they playing up to the judge? Maybe that judge loves golf and they'll get a little in there, you know? Yeah, we'll see. Or, and so they go on and uh, talk about, they call the item number one whiff. And uh, they go on, and and a lot of the wording in here is uh, not straight up legalese. It is yeah. you know shots at Murdoch and his uh, team. If you didn't hear the episode where we talked about this originally, when Gloria Satterfield fell, Ellick was saying to everybody that the dogs knocked her over and caused her to fall. He even said at one point that Gloria told him that. And I'm summarizing this in a short version. Then he comes out later, just a month ago or so, and says the dogs did not cause Gloria to fall. Yeah, he says he lied about that. So this whole settlement should have never happened in the first place because he made the whole thing up. It was fraud. So the 4.3 that he got should not uh, go to the Satterfields. But Blaine Richter said... We don't want to jump in front of the line because we've got a bunch of money through other settlements, people, the bank and Bank of America and Palmetto State Bank and the law, Corey Fleming's law firm. Yeah. And so they said, well, we'll just wait in line. But now Alec and his team are saying, well, it was all fraud. We, we're not going to give the, the 4.3. Well, I think this is a good time to bring up that I've had a couple of experienced insurance adjusters reach out to me and they found this $4.3 million settlement unusual. They had never seen this type of settlement in their years of experience. This person actually tweeted me, I've been in the insurance business for 12 years. I've seen many claims from my insureds. I read trade journals nearly every day, take CE classes, often attend insurance company meetings about claims. With or without the dogs, I've never seen a $3.3 million payout in similar circumstances. That's, it is huge. And again, though, maybe it is just way off the regular scale in certain counties. Yeah. I, I don't know how far up, and Chad mentioned that when we yeah, talked Yeah, Chad him. disagreed. He, th- he felt that the venue, maybe that was the reason why this settlement was agreed upon by the insurance company. Very good. Now let's move to our guest. He is Michael DeWitt. Junior, Hampton County native, multiple award-winning journalist, longtime editor of the Hampton County Guardian, did a lot of great stories for Gannett's Nationwide USA Today, Today Network, uh, appeared on ABC's 2020, 48 Hours, various Murdoch documentaries, and uh, Michael served as a volunteer historian, storyteller, and playwright for the five-county Sakahachi Stew Oral History. And he is a good guy. He's been real nice to us over the last few years. We've had him before. Uh, Wicked Hampton County is the name of the book. Hello, Michael. Good morning. Morning. So right out of the gate, uh, I will look at this one quote you have in the, the preface, which is, I know much about greatness and much about wickedness and scandal. 
and I have an appreciation for both. Perhaps that is why I became a storyteller for my community. And when we've talked over this few years of doing the Murdoch stuff, you often brought up the storytelling thing and how I, I get the vibe from you that that's more of a passion than, say, um, investigative journalism. That's right. I'm uh, by by nature. It's not my natural nature to be an investigative journalist. I don't have the curious mind that uh, a really good investigative journalist has. Uh, I have. I'm more of a storyteller. Uh, you know, I, ha- I, I of course I have to be a journalist, and I tr- I, I do my best. And some days I I do well. Uh, some days better than others. But uh, my passion is in the story and in the characters and. Um, you know, and and communicating with the readers and, and luring them in with a good story. In your preference, you talk about your aunt, Edna, who would share her memories, but her stories were different. She spoke of great tragedy and wicked deeds and people's battle with alcohol and demons. And mm-hmm. this was the person I always wanted to sit next to at Thanksgiving oh, lunch. Get the dirt. Yep. Yep. Uh, <laughs> how... Has your family and community reacted to this book? My family's been very supportive. Uh, I don't know if every one of them had time to sit down and, and, and read it just yet, but they know a lot of, you know, they obviously they know our family stories and um, they've been very supportive. Uh, the community, uh, for the most part, here in Hampton County have been supportive. There, you know, have been a few, uh, few negative um, reactions and responses, uh, primarily um some of the locals uh, take offense to the title Wicked Hampton County, and they think that uh, the book is telling the world that Hampton County is a wicked place and we're all horrible people. And that's uh, that's not true. It's I've tried to explain to people that uh, this is a series. Um, the History Press and Arcadia Publishing is a national or international publishing company, and they have several uh, series like uh, my first history book was Images of America. Um, it was in a, it's a national-wide series with over uh, 1,200 titles at the time. And Wicked is a series. There's a Wicked Buford, Wicked Charleston, Wicked okay. Greenville. Um, it appeals to the to uh, people's interest in in historical true crime, and uh, it was just a perfect fit for the Wicked series. So the title is Wicked Hampton County. So other than that, small negative reaction just from a few locals who probably get offended by. A lot of things they, they shouldn't be offended by. It's been mostly supportive throughout the community and had a great turnout uh, for uh, my first book signing uh, in Walterboro. And uh, and we're, we've kicked off the book tour and hopefully we'll, ha- we'll continue to have some good support. We all have past and Hampton surely does as well. And I've, a quote that I read from your book was, out of war, rune, racism, fear and hate, Hampton County was born. A lot of our past, we can say these bad things, but that doesn't necessarily define the future. That's right. And, and I try to make it clear in the book that Hampton County is no, is no different. It's no worse or no better than any other place. I mean, we happen to be named for uh, a Confederate general who, who owned slaves, um, you know, but there are other counties and towns out there named for, for similar historical figures, you know. Our history, you know, if you, in the book, we talk about the Klan and lynchings and things of that nature. I just sat down with two people who drove from Alabama to see the Low Country and purchased two two copies of the book. And they were telling me, you know, they're from Alabama. The same thing happened in, in every county in Alabama. Same thing happened in Georgia. So 
you know, Hampton County isn't isn't uh, unique in that regard. You know, wicked things happened in that time period around the country. But I'm not telling those stories. I'm telling the story of my hometown, my community. And I asked the questions, you know, a lot of locals didn't know much of the things in this book. Uh, you know, we hear about the, the, the Klan rallies and the, and the lynchings. And we thought, well, that happened somewhere else. That happened over in Mississippi. That didn't happen here. Well, it happened here, too. And a lot of things here people didn't know about. Locals uh, who weren't old enough didn't know that Notre Dame University students had to come here and, and help locals sign up to get the right to vote. And we had we had civil rights marches here and uh, we had a standoff at the county jail and Buster Murdoch and all the, the state police were there and, and the college students were protesting and had a sit in so people could get the right to vote. We thought these things happen in Selma, Alabama or somewhere else, but they happen right here, too. And um, but again, in the beginning of the book and, and I asked the question, you know, now that we we fully know our past, where do we go from here? What, what can we learn and how can we make the future better? Yeah, you don't shy away from it. it the, you, you go into some of the, the lynchings, it, it just sickening of what had happened and you don't try to paint a pretty stroke you you are pretty hardcore about telling the stories and you mentioned notre dame you it, that's a story about in the late 60s students from notre dame st mary's holy cross junior college came down to hampton county to organize and help its black citizens register to vote while overcoming voter suppression tactics and it was huge news even uh, nationally and the students were not greeted kindly by the white citizens or officials in power. And you dive into that story and uh, quote, some of the Notre Dame student activists were there and some of the, the clan marches and stuff. And it was just a bad times for sure. I just found out a fun fact from Seton. Yes. My dad was a Yankee student who came down and marched with Martin Luther King Jr. in Selma. Wow. That's great. You know, my father often talks about one of his big regrets in life was not going down to March. He said he just kind of wasn't aware of it as much as he wished he would have been in a tiny little small town in Pennsylvania. And he always, he watches specials, he tears up when he talks about it. Well, let's talk a little bit about the riot of 1880 and Governor Wade Hampton. Uh, this all was coming about because of the special election that had gone on and there was all kinds of voter fraud and voter registration problems and voting restriction problems. Give us a little bit of background on that real quick. Wade Hampton had just been elected governor of the state. And, you know, so statewide there was some uh, turmoil and uh, it carried through to the local election. So the Democrats and the Republicans, uh, you know, went at it hot and heavy, I think, that year. Someone was killed on election day at the courthouse. The Hampton County Courthouse used to be the ground floor that was open. And somebody was stabbed and killed right there on the ground floor of the courthouse. Jeez. A voter was coming back from the polls and uh, was the voter and his mule were shot and killed by buckshot. Oh, there was a train wreck uh, caused by um, sabotage. There was um, a jailbreak. All kinds of things happened in this lovely little election of 1880. And I thought it was an interesting, interesting thing to start the book off. Sounds a lot like some of our current day elections. Mm. It was uh, hotly contested. Hampton emerged as the winner on paper, but 
Governor Chamberlain uh, contested those results. Refused to step down even. Crazy times. Yeah, crazy. And there was a lot of cheating going on, a lot of ballot stuff. And I think in in one election, um, the the Democrats won by exactly 10,000 votes over the total number of registered voters. So however many (laughs) registered voters there were in the county, 10,000 mysterious votes appeared (laughs) And uh, on top of that. And uh, so there was a lot of cheating on both sides, and there was a lot of um, violence and strong-arm activity on both sides. Wade Hampton had his red shirts, and they were basically a paramilitary group that, you know, former Confederate soldiers. And wherever he went on uh, campaign, they went and to either drum up support or, you know, use the threat of violence to, to get people to vote. And there was a lot of violence against um, the other party and against black citizens. Well, the Republicans did the same thing. They, they'd sweep into town and they'd harass and, and intimidate and, and use violence against the Democrats. So uh, it was a very, very rough time period to get in, involved in politics. Like the mule, I, I wrote in the book, uh, the politically unaffiliated mule was killed. So you didn't have to necessarily be a Democrat <laughs> or Republican to get called up in that violence. Right. <laughs> You describe Hampton in its early days as kind of like the Wild West, but you call it the Wild East. Yeah. You, you say it was, it was late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, there was uh, livestock roaming the streets, and there was gunfights and, and robberies. And this will be interesting kind of to the uh, people who followed the Murdoch trial. And remember, they kept talking about the wild hogs. Yes, a lot of hog pigs, hunting. A lot of hog hunting stuff. And this is early 1900s. He, he wrote about how uh, in a South Carolina low country, they had massive alligators and mammoth wild hogs to contend with. The giant porkers ranged in and out of the Sakahachie and Kusawachie swamps. Did I say it right? I think so. <laughs> Destroying farmland and sometimes even the occasional hapless hunter and his dogs. In 1941, this guy killed a mammoth hog weighing 400 pounds with five tusks measuring five inches and bottom tusk was over three inches. And they kept they, they, these giant, massive hogs running around. And we mentioned the uh, robberies. Yeah, there, there, was a, there were train robberies. And maybe some things haven't changed because I think you just reported on a train robbery recently in Hampton. That's right. Right here in, uh, in Estill, in the southern part of the county, the human heart hasn't changed. Crime, the, the, you know, the sins of, 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 of murder and, and, and theft, uh, they, they'll never go away. Just the methods have changed. So whereas back then, you know, the train robbers were out looking for cash or gold or whatever the trains were carrying, whatever was in the banks. These guys here in Estill a a month or so ago were uh, looking to steal catalytic converters off of vehicles. Uh, Okay. And they actually cut a hole in the side of the train and were trying to cut the catalytic converters, catalytic converters out of the cars they were transporting. So. Um, interesting new take on a, on a, <laughs> a, a age old type of crime. <laughs> Have they been caught by the way? No, they've arrested one of the suspects, the man who stood on the tracks and, and flagged the train down. They identified him and they got him, but they haven't got his, uh, his accomplices yet. Take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up. Some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around, right? So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to. You want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in. 
and you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. It can also be used as an app on your phone or tablet. And Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion. So instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals. You read stories, you participate in dialogues, so you are ready to go. It's the most trusted, time-tested app out there. They've been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Buy Rosetta Stone now, and you never have to pay a renewal fee. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today. Let's uh, talk a little about the Murdoch, since that's what this podcast has been about mostly for the last uh, few years, and they were almost 100 years in power. And if you jump into the the 60s and early 70s, civil rights violations in the town of Hampton, voting issues, how did the Murdoch family, especially Randolph Buster Murdoch Jr., deal with this where did they fit in in this history what side were they on what can you what light can you shed on that the Murdochs were a little different i mean they were uh they were democrats while they may have had some uh uh moments um that might be questionable like when the when the sit-in protests happened uh the civil rights protests happened at the old jail buster murdoch was there and he wasn't on the side of the protesters by any means but at the same time, they were Democrats. Uh, in more modern times, the Murdochs have been um, involved in, in members of the NAACP. They, they're politicians, uh, white or black. As long as you're, you know, a, a Democrat, you're on their side. You're their buddy. They, they shake your hand. They know your name, and uh, and you could argue the only color that matters really to to people like that is the color green. So. I don't really put them in a strong racial context in this book. Yeah. Something in your book that stood out to me was that Buster made deals with black and white leaders to keep the peace because he didn't like having troubles in his hometown. So this certainly sounds like a politician to me. Yeah. And I didn't go into as much detail in there because I couldn't prove every single thing. The source, the historian that talked to me, um, you know, I didn't want to name names and, and go into too much detail, but but that was the basic idea behind it. Buster didn't want trouble in his quiet hometown. You know, he sat down with black leaders and uh, he made a deal with them. I think there, one of them, there's a story that one of them had some criminal charges and opinion uh, against him, uh, maybe involving a, a, a woman or uh, something like that. And he said, you know, I'll make your legal troubles go away. If you can, you know, let's, let's cut down on some of these, these marches and these protests. And then he goes to the Klan and he tells them, look here, you know, you can do that over in Calder County all day long, but don't bring it to Hampton County. And so uh, basically by talking to, to both sides, he, um, and that's kind of been a pattern uh, throughout what I've seen throughout the, the Murdoch dynasty, you know, Hampton, Barnville, this is our quiet hometown. We, we don't, you know, we don't want dirt in our backyard. You do it somewhere else in the circuit and we'll deal with it, you know. And I just found that was to be very interesting. I um, did too. You know, you've got the, the power and the influence to, 
to run the clan out of town with just a handshake. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's power. Mentioned in the book that he, uh, ran the out of town clan members, uh, but left the local racist here to settle down their own. So, I mean, you can, he had the influence, but it wasn't like he was taking a stand really. Just, we want peace here. Go be a clan somewhere else or be racist. I mean, would have been a lot better if he just called everybody out and said, don't be bigoted a-holes, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) I'll settle for that. Uh, Let's move on to Handsome, who was Buster's son. And he was called Handsome after the birth of his granddaughter. He chose the nickname Handsome because he always wanted to be called Handsome by women. I had some compassion for him because when he was only nine years old, he accompanied his father, who was known as Buster, to a farmer who's had, I guess, killed his sister in some sort of grisly way. Yes, it was a gruesome murder. Yes, and he heard this confession from this farmer about killing his sister. Uh, Buster and, and and young Randolph were sitting on the banks of a of a river fishing, and uh, in Collin County, uh, he, he taking his son fishing. There was no court that week, whatever, and. The county sheriff comes to get him and said, we've got this man that wants to confess to, to, to killing his sister, but he said he only talked to Buster. He won't talk to us. He wants to talk to you. He trusts you. And so they leave the fishing hole and he takes young Randolph with him and they hear this this heartbreaking confession. And uh, Randolph told me in a 2018 interview I did with him that he felt sorry for both of them. The old man was old. He was sick. His sister was sick. He didn't want to be the the person responsible for the old man spending the rest of his days in jail. He just wanted to, you know, stay out of it. And his daddy's like, you know, you're going to testify if I have to declare you a hostile witness. Um, <laughs> that's how nine. Randolph tells the story that yeah. daddy was going to make him a hostile witness. And when Buster uh, told the story to a reporter um, years later, Buster said that, uh, told it a different way, but said he was going to make his son uh, stand in court and hold his subpoena. And then, of course, there's a, another story where Randolph thought subpoena was something dirty. His daddy told him he was going to have to uh, hold a subpoena, and Randolph <laughs> thought he was talking about something dirty. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. but, and Buster had a, a flair for the drama, which got him in trouble with the ethics board numerous times. Uh, one of the times was there was a, a murderer, John Bowers, who was a still storekeeper, and I guess lost his mind, murdered his wife, son, and daughter in a gruesome way with a baseball bat. And so Bowers had confessed to uh, Randolph Buster Murdoch Jr. that he waited his family to return home from a movie and then turned on them one by one because he said his wife uh, and he had not been getting along well. And in really cold, gruesome murder. But in his closing remarks, Buster said, quote, John Bowers has to be removed from society by electrocution if Hampton County is to be made a safe place in which to live. If he is ever released on society and kills again, no one is responsible but yourselves. Very dramatic. Yeah, there were a lot of cases uh, like that. In the Supreme Court, uh, you know, so a lot of his convictions were, were overturned. A lot of his death row cases were, were brought back. And some of them were reconvicted and eventually were executed. And some of them were, 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 were set free because of something that Buster did or said in the courtroom. He, he said things like, uh, 
If you don't find this man guilty of rape, I've got another murder uh, rape trial coming up this afternoon. I'll just turn that rapist free or, um, you know, I'll never I'll never prosecute another murder case in this county ever again. If you don't find this person guilty. So he man. would say and do things to um, to coerce and, and, and threaten the jury and intimidate them. And the Supreme Court, you know, did not agree with a lot of things he did. Well, this uh Still baseball bat slayer, John D. Bowers, killing his family. I don't know if there's been, there was, there was this cold-blooded killing of a family until Alec Murdoch was convicted. And the whole court case, you write about it in here, it was a lot of drama involved. During the trial, Buster took the baseball bat, the murder weapon, and handed it to uh, the jury boy. And the jury boy was just swinging it and playing with it in court. And what? the judge thought that was inappropriate. So he took the, <laughs> the, the murder weapon from the kid and, and made the kid leave the courtroom, made, told his mom to come get him. And uh, so lots of, of horrible but fascinating things in that particular uh, trial as well. And that, that man spent some time in what they call the lunatic asylum on Bull Street and uh, spent the rest of his life in prison, obviously. Can you please also write a book on Bull Street? Because <laughs> I think there's a lot of stories to be told there as well. Yes, yes. Let's talk about Banker Bowden, who opened this loan and exchange bank in 1907, which was the predecessor to what we now know as Palmetto State Bank. He seemed like quite a character. In the book, you describe a story where a, a new young doctor had moved to town and he didn't have any money. and Bowden asked him what sort of collateral he could put up, and he said he didn't have anything other than his wife and children. Some days my kids would not be worth a lot of collateral. <laughs> <laughs> well, he took their names and wrote them down as collateral. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I guess that was just on paper. I don't know what would have happened if, if the bank would have tried to uh, collect on that collateral. But yeah, he, you know, if you came to him and you wanted to borrow money for for copper pipe, copper tubing, and and things of that nature that you and you were clearly making a moonshine uh, operation. He would he would loan you the money. Um, he was quicker to loan money on a mule than he was those newfangled Ford cars they had back then. <laughs> um, and he would go out there and check the mule's teeth and make sure he was a good investment. And I didn't add this to the book because it, uh, I found this out later. But I talked to a younger person who remembered the banker, and. He said he was kind of a, um, in his later years, he was kind of a deranged, uh, not deranged, but kind of an eccentric, that's a good word, an eccentric man. He, he, you know, every time you saw him, he uh, had a pistol in one pocket and a bottle of liquor in the other. um, He uh, just struck me as a most interesting character and and, and not, I I know, I know his family and his descendants. I want to make it clear. He was not a, a wicked character. He was never accused of, of, breaking any laws, but he certainly did business his own way. And, um, he befriended a robber. uh, He did what scene? He befriended a robber, which I thought that was really kind of interesting (laughs) there. He, he, he did some sort of interview with a bank robber and asked if they might be able to break into his bank. That's right. And that story made, um, I can't remember the name of the TV show, but NBC had a, a national TV show and radio program back in the day when people sat around and listened to the radio and didn't have TVs um, or very few people had TVs. They, uh, NBC had a had a radio show that would be on the radio on Thursday nights and on TV on Friday nights or something like that. And um, 
this uh, reformed bank robber. He was um, Big Jim Norton or something like that. And he had got caught and did his time. And now he was kind of a celebrity uh, former robber. And he invited him. He didn't invite him to Hampton to, to anywhere near the bank. He invited him out to the Savannah River to his to his fish camp <laughs> to have dinner with him and talk about, uh, you know, bank robbing and, and weaknesses in, in the bank and things of that nature. But uh, just a very, very interesting story. I know a lot of people know about Pat Conroy, the Buford County novelist, and he's been mentioned a lot during this Murdoch time. They're like, that's kind of book, this whole thing, this reality would be what Pat Conroy would walk, uh, would write about. And in the book, you talk about an encounter that Randolph Buster Murdoch Jr. had with Pat Conroy, and Conroy wrote about it in his memoir, The Death of Santini, the story of a father and his son. Describe that meeting to us. Uh, he described meeting uh, Buster and um, somebody pointed out to me that Conroy was a fiction writer. So like any good fiction writers, he's going to embellish a little bit. Uh, but he described uh, meeting Buster and Buster said, I'm the cock of the walk in these here in these here parts. And um he offered, he said, you've got a, you know, you've got the gift. He said, you make a fine lawyer. Uh, let me send you to law school and I'll make you the, the damnedest lawyer you've ever seen. Uh, and uh, Pat Conroy turned him down and said, no, I'll stick to, to teaching and writing. And um, but I found that to be a very, that little scene, I think, is very telling of, of Buster's personality. Just very cocky, just very, um, you know, self Self-centered, self-important, and um, I think it described Buster Murdoch to a T. Yeah. And I know you talk a lot more about the Murdochs in another book you have coming out. Tell us about your new book, The Fall of the House of Murdoch. I'm finishing up uh, now, and hopefully we'll be out in August or, or uh, no later in September. Um, so there are a lot of the, the historical Murdoch stories that I go into more detail and I save some really good stories for that book. Um, good. you know, that, I uh, that I really wanted to, to slip in, in here, but I say, you know, I've got to save something for the, for, for round two. Let's go back to the book we're talking about now, Wicked Hampton County. And you dedicate the book to the future of Hampton County, our children. Where will we go from here? Tell us about this dedication. Well, I reference a uh, I reference a history book that was published in 1971 um, called Both Sides of the Swamp. If you're from Hampton County, you know the um, the Coosahatchee uh, River and the and the Salkatchee River run through um, our county, and you know we have just like in uh, Beaufort County, you have north of Broad and south of Broad, kind of a, a, a geographic boundary that that also becomes a cultural or economic boundary in a place. And here in our county, you know, what's south of the swamp on 601 is our south district, Estill, Garnet, Luray, and north of, of the swamp is Hampton, Barnville, the larger towns, the county seat. And years ago, when we used to have um, many, many school districts, and then gradually we ended up having two public school districts, and during integration, the South District remained a high minority, poor rural school district. And the north part of the county fared a lot better. Uh, they took to integration a, a little better. Let's just say it like that. And 
we've always had both sides of the swamp. Well, here recently, within the past year or two, our two public school districts have consolidated into one unified school district. And there we've gotten some state funding and we're about to build a new consolidated high school that will bring all students of the county together in one school. And it's kind of symbolic. I, I ended the book with this, that after all these hundreds of years, both sides of the swamp are now finally uh, unified into one. You know, maybe this is a sign of the future. And um, Wade Hampton High School, which is where I graduated, this graduating class that will march uh, this coming Friday night will be the last graduating class of Wade Hampton High School. After that, the school will be named simply Hampton County High School. And it's just changing times. You know, we've our past is behind us. Both sides of the swamp have come together. And now it's time to uh, now that we know the sins of our past and we are starting to come together. Where do we go from here? Uh, Michael, I, that's one of the things I really appreciate how you uh, wrote the book was that uh, warts and all it is there. You didn't ignore those painful, awful parts of history in the county and that, uh, it, you know, you deserve credit for that because you could have just written a pretty, pretty pose about all the Southern bells and, you know, sitting on drinking iced tea and all that, but nope, you, uh, you got down and dirty and, uh, that's just part of the way it was and the way it will never be again. We can hope. Well, and not just for Hampton County, for everybody. Right. I mean, I actually had the same thing with my own family, I had a family member told me a terrible story about someone else, and the other family member didn't speak to that family member for a very long time. So, just within families themselves, yeah, yep. that's yep. just it's just part of it. Part uh, of life. Where can they get this book, Michael? Well, if you're an internet shopper and you don't want to leave the comfort of your your computer, you can just go to uh, Arcadia Publishing and uh, and search "Put in Wickenham County." It'll take you to my author page. You can go to Amazon. I have an author page on Amazon. I will be having events all around the low country and later the upstate. Uh, June 16th, I'll be at the Colleton County Courthouse again, which is where the murder trial of Alex Murdoch was held. We had a very successful book signing on uh, on last Friday, and I'm looking forward to an even bigger crowd on the 16th in Walterboro. I'm also excited about this. During the Watermelon Festival on June 23rd, I will be at the Hampton Library from 4 to 6 p.m. June 23rd. It's the day of the big street dance, so I'm hoping people will come and pay me a visit. Uh, you know, get your book signed. Let me tell you a story or two, and then go enjoy the Watermelon <laughs> Festival. Go to the street dance, have a good time, shake a leg. In July, I'll be in Allendale, South Carolina, Ridgeland, which is in Jasper County, and probably Beaufort. So, got a, a good summer uh, tour planned. And I'll take a, a little break and get fall of Murdoch out, and then we'll do it again. <laughs> well, I'm going to come get my book signed. Yep. Michael, appreciate it very much, and uh, we will talk again. Great. Yeah, well, come on. Come on to Hampton or come to come to Waldenburg. Let's have a little reunion, and, and I'll, sign, I'll sign your book, and we'll, awesome. we'll swap stories. How about that? Love it. Love it. Before we wrap, uh, we got a nice positive uh, review, so we'll relish in that moment. Uh the app review says, I started listening to this podcast after Alec Murdoch was convicted. I've really enjoyed Seton and Matt's perspective and breaking down that episode's information. I personally do not watch the news because of skewed opinions, so I appreciate they brought guests to the table from the defense, prosecution, experts in the fields of whatever information was being presented at the time. 
I believe Matt and Seton did a great journalistic duty during this podcast and looking at all sides of the spectrum to give the most fair commentary. At the end of the day, this is a podcast, and Seton and Matt might have given their opinions based on evidence or information at that point, which I thought was fantastic. As listeners, we don't have to agree or with their opinion. You may have different perspectives, and that's okay. Great job, Matt and Seton. I hope you continue this journey. I thought your podcast was a great way to have discourse because so many of us were having these same conversations. Thank you. We appreciate it. And then right under that, please prepare better. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll ignore that one. Well, no, sometimes we do need to prepare better. Yeah, That's we, true. We, we take all of the feedback, positive, negative, whatever, and we chew on it and try to get better every single time. Uh, check out the Murdoch Podcast Facebook page, Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. We're grateful. We'll talk soon, friend. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2, a new podcast from Crowd Network. Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com.